You're listening to Reads on Film with me, Emma Stone. Hello everyone and welcome to Reads on Film. We are returning today with a new episode on Poor Things, the new film by Yorgos Lanthimos, a multi-Oscar nominated film. We're going to be, as usual, giving our takes, uh, going around the room and seeing what people thought of it. I think we've all seen it once, we've all had a bit of time to to digest it. So yeah, I guess let's kick off with our initial impressions. Um, I'll start by handing the microphone over to Theo. Yeah, so um, I saw Poor Things a while ago and I was impressed initially by the direction of the film. I thought it looked visually amazing. Cinematography, soundtrack, uh, score even. I was maybe came out slightly confused about like the... I thought it ran on for a long time and I thought maybe it tapered out towards the end in terms of the plot, but... I was very impressed by the overall um, picture. Dad? I really liked it. I thought it was an impressive film. I like Yorgos Lanthimos' films generally. He's got a very, I think, unique sort of almost singular vision. And yeah, as Theo said, the look, um, the curiosity about the world. But I mean, it's the performance that really makes the film, the performance of Emma Stone. I mean, who'd have thought that watching her in was it Spider-Man? She was Gwen Stacy and then in La La Land that she'd go on to have a career making films like this. Yeah. Gets a thumbs up from me. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I also really liked it. Um, thought it actually, the runtime didn't really bother me. I thought it fit the runtime pretty well. Um, performance is great. The, the, the most standout thing to me was the kind of cinematography, the aesthetics, the set design, all of that was just like, kind of blew me away. Never seen anything like it. Nice. Uh, yeah, obviously back to me, Callum. I um, really liked the film, really enjoyed it. I think it was provocatively weird from the outset, and I think there was a, that, was a, that was kind of quite divisive and provocative almost intentionally. But I think once I got over that initial kind of shock, I think the film really came into its own. It was fun. It was um, extravagant. It was adventurous. Um, yeah, really enjoyed it. And it- so uh, maybe it's a bit early to go into this, but do you not think it, like one thing, and I, I, this isn't necessarily a criticism of it, but like, you know how you said like it, from the outset it was quite weird. Mm. I thought like that the beginning was weirder than the rest of the film. Mm. And actually, like, even though it was kind of a strange, like, like the, a film with uh, surreal elements, uh, that from the outset you thought it felt like it was going to be a lot weirder as a film than it actually was. And I think it was a far more accessible as a, uh, you know, overall than kind of the first five minutes let on. Yeah, I agree completely. I actually, that was my favourite part of the film, that first 20, 30 minutes where it's in black and white and you're having, you have all these crazy shots. Um, everything's a bit like surreal. Um, I guess thematically it's almost like you're seeing the world through this like uh, child or like toddler's eyes. Uh, everything looks a bit like you're in a fancy world and I really like that the sort of the yeah. music as well the, the music the like piano it's a very like I think it's just a piano track and it's like very much like off key like yeah just like random notes I think I agree I think while it was like I think you're right that the weirdest part was almost the opening 20 minutes and I think there you make a good case for why that is mm. when you're a newborn child which effectively Bella Baxter is in the op- opening 
like that is the world at its most strange where thing you know your eyes don't work properly so everything looks funny and it's like almost like a hallucinatory world that you're living in and obviously that carries on throughout the film but very early on it's almost at its at its most strange and i think as a sort of double-edged sword to that i think for me i i almost re- i respect a, a filmmaker or a director that just says like they kind of lay their cards on the table in the first 20 minutes and say this is the, this is going to be a bit weird if this is too much for you like fine go leave now and, <laughs> yeah. and, and don't watch the rest which yeah. I, I think is, is kind of a bold but um interesting decision to have made which is interesting because i watched it in a cinema with uh five people and uh in that first uh 15 minutes two of them walked out wow um but i i would agree as well i mean the first sort of 20 minutes set in um in the house of godwin baxter it reminded me a bit of um his earlier film Dogtooth, with the really which was i you know i think a much more provocative film much more challenging film and actually quite difficult to watch at times uh where the rules were completely crazy um and it, it took me back to that mm. nice before we go any further let's um let's dive into the the basic outline of the plot and then obviously as we should say as always this will be rife with spoilers left right and center so if you haven't watched the film get to the cinema now turn off the podcast go and see it and then come back and finish the podcast once you leave the cinema anyway. on the way home <laughs> yeah <laughs> um d- uh, dad steven all oh, right, so I'm going to give a summary of mine. So, well, I mean, it opens, uh, the film opens in a kind of strange um, Victorian London, and then it starts with a pregnant woman who is on a bridge, and then quite shockingly, she throws herself into the river. Um, and then she is brought back to life by a rather unorthodox surgeon, Godwin Baxter. Uh, and he does this by slicing off the back of her head and replacing her brain with the brain of her unborn baby. And she's reborn as Bella Baxter. She's a fast learner, sort of hungry to learn about the world. So she runs off on this escapade with a, a debauched lawyer. Um, and they have this sort of whirlwind adventure that uh, takes in Lisbon, Alexandria, and then they end up in Paris. And uh, yeah, I think that pretty much gets you into the film. Uh, so I think one thing that we said we would talk about briefly in the beginning of the film, uh, beginning of the podcast rather, uh, is some of the discourse that's been sort of circulating around the film about the sort of the way the film is engaging with the notion of womanhood. Uh, obviously, you've got a male director, screenwriter, cinematographer, blah, blah, blah. Um, what are the implications of this? Some people are sort of reading this as a sort of feminist journey about female empowerment and sexual liberation. Other people are saying, well, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos, he's, you know, his camera has got a, a keen eye for naked female bodies and, and that this is sort of the next episode of his um, male gallivanting filmic fantasy. I think we could probably all agree that it's a shame that so much of the sort of discussion about this film is is based around that kind of very divisive is it misogynist or is it a feminist film i think like most like most things i think it's not quite as cut and dry as that um but i think it would be interesting to get people's takes on whether that was something that affected your viewing of the film you know whether you think any of that any of those ideas are resonant interesting waste of time Hmm. well initially i thought 
immediately it was quite clearly there was a lot of allusions to Frankenstein, mm, yeah. which um, is quite a known, like f- quite a prominent feminist piece, I would say, yeah, by Mary Shelley. Um, and this idea of criticizing the like purest form of patriarchy, which is taking away the role of mothers in birth, uh, which is what Baxter Godwin does mm. when he implants the baby's brain into this dead woman's body. So on that front, I immediately thought that this was going to be a feminist uh, film, which I still think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's impossible to, you know, just completely dismiss the sort of that kind of feminist reading of it. Um, and from, I mean, again, from the outset, I mean, even this idea of like this this baby's brain in a sort of woman's body, it's like this ultimate sort of final stage of the kind of infantilization. And I, I think I think it's not something that you see in the film quite often, is that she is treated, I mean, partially because of, you know, her her being uh, intellectually underdeveloped but she's treated by the male characters as like a child and isn't really given that kind of space to like grow by a lot of the characters i mean obviously mark rough you know to varying degrees but even like got say godwin and uh, what's his name um you mean the medical Rami Yusuf's character max mccandles that you know they at the beginning of the film they you know she, she's being kept in this house it's you know, it, it is this kind of removal of agency from her. But it's almost to the men's detriment because it's like Godwin, Baxter Godwin, who's trying to be like super protective and have this kind of like vulnerable, um, childlike woman. Um, and then he realizes his, like, it kind of crushes him when she goes out and leaves. And it's almost. And it's the same with um, Mark Ruffalo's character, who's similarly starts out as this like debauched guy who's like, um, who really wants to control her. And it's like his idea of how, I guess, a relationship should be. But then it leaves him when she, when he realizes he can't control her, it leaves him in a very bad state. And, I guess you almost feel sorry for him at the end that he's kind of like this patriarchal system has kind of um, messed messed him up, really. Yeah, I mean, we've been here before, haven't we? I mean, this sort of idea of men sort of creating a woman in the way, in an image they want um, her to be. I mean, it goes all the way back to Ovid's Metamorphoses and Pygmalion, and then we've got My Fair Lady with Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle, one of, you know, a great film, I think. Um, And then, I mean, more recently, we've got Lolita. So it's something we've seen again and again, isn't it, this idea? But I think Poor Things takes it further than that. I think, as you say, we actually see the detrimental effect that it can have on the men around her in her environment. Um, particularly yeah, Duncan Wedderburn. So, yeah, I think it's a shame, really, that, as you said, Callum, that the um, conversations around the film have been sort of overwhelmingly around mm. this and, and also, obviously, the explicit use of sex. But, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos, I mean, if you look at his previous films, as I was saying with Dog 2, much more, much more challenging in terms of um, the ideas around sex um, and challenging or inappropriate relationships. I think it is interesting that 
the particularly the sex in this film has caused such a fury when you think about how people generally when it comes to let's say extreme violence uh, mm. we don't really bat an eyelid about that well it's interesting you say that because that is something that i picked up on in the production notes that emma stone mentioned is that for her what was so interesting about doing this film and that the, the, the american audience's reaction to violence as opposed to sex is vastly different that we're okay watching someone's head sort of getting splattered against the, mm -hmm. the curb or whatever and and that's not that, that doesn't i mean it does to some extent with with people like quentin tarantino but it's almost like a sort of a joke like it's just like oh is this a, you know is this a, is this are you worried about how violent this is whereas people people do seriously take take issue with it um and I think obviously the film is trying to challenge that. I don't. I don't think that because it's something that Yorgos Lanthimos has done in previous films that. I, I mean, it's partly just the. Um, I guess the the popularity and the the, the mainstreamness, mm, if you like, of yeah. things. I mean, Dogtooth. I've seen it, but it's. I mean, it's it's in Greek, right? It's one of his. Is it? Greek, yeah, it's yeah, Greek yeah. Family, yeah. I mean, I think it's like 2009, so it was a much less like wide, wide audience. Um, and obviously, I just think times have changed from 2009 to now. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I'm in the camp of saying like this is a feminist film, and I think, uh, I think to, to to speak about it in that binary manner is a bit of a category error. I think. I think it's a film that's designed to provoke and ask questions. It's obviously satirizing the kind of um, attempts of men to control women. And I think it's asking questions more than it is trying to sort of neatly assign um, a, a way or an approach to life. I don't think the idea is you watch this and you're inspired, like I'm gonna go out and be Bella Baxter or I'm gonna go out and be Duncan Wedderburn, obviously not. But the idea is to sort of think about her experience and what that says and what that challenge is about how we view and move through the world um and yeah. also particularly how women move through the world and there were the same i think there was the same reaction around barbie wasn't there you know there was this sort of discussion about whether somehow um barbie as a film should have a change in the way the world treats women mm. yeah which is ridiculous really Sorry, whether it cause cause would cause a change or well, yeah it should cause lead to social change cultural change Mm. I mean, film has a capability to do that, right? Some like you know, change the course of our like cultural yeah yeah path. I think Greta Gerwig. I mean, not to me. Obviously, we're not doing mm -hmm. a Barbie podcast, but I think she probably would say that that was part of her aim with the film. Was yeah, to, like drive social change. Yeah, but to, like, I, I I think with poor things, it's funny that we say we refer to it as provocative in that you know it, sh it explicitly shows like sex and you know there is a lot of sex in the film, but it's not like it's not there's no sexual violence in it there's no like it's not the, the sex in it isn't like it's on the whole shown more from her perspective from like a positive light she's not even though she's exploited she never really suffers mm. any like significant consequences i mean they're alluded to we hear about like sexually trans transmitted diseases but it's not she doesn't mm. actually she's not affected negatively or like wholly negatively in the way that you know you might see in something that would be a bit more like provocative or a little bit more risky in its uh, depiction of like sex. Yeah, I agree, and that's what that was my earlier point. I mean, the sex is explicit, but in a way, the way it's depicted is not as challenging, certainly as um, yeah. here Yorkus, you know, presented it in his earlier work, mm. even going back to like the favourite with all the muck and stuff that was in that film. I haven't seen that, actually. I was I tried to watch it this week, but I just didn't get around to it. Um, mm. yeah, so I, like I think that would have been an interesting counterpoint mm. to, to view this film. 
um, and obviously Emma Stone was in that as well so I think this is like the third or fourth project that they've done together mm. her and Yorgos Lanthimos which I think again is another thing and I think obviously we should move on from this particular part of the, the conversation but I think a lot of the time when, when people have this discussion they almost sort of um, shoot themselves in the foot by removing Emma Stone as an autonomous artist within this process who has obviously chosen to explore these ideas and themes so when we talk about oh it's a male director and a, a male whatever I think it's important to acknowledge that Emma Stone was a producer and has a production credit and when you hear her talking about the film she was kind of involved in it from the outset as a, as a kind of co-creator so to purely dismiss it as a kind of male fantasy I think is um, is as 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 ridiculous as to say this is like the next female manifesto for how to live your life. That's a good question, really. That springs to my mind. Has anyone actually read the book? I'm about seventy pages in, um, I, and I didn't I didn't want to bring it in too much because there's nothing worse than when someone you're trying to have a discussion about a film and every sentence the person mm. says is well oh, in the book. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. in the book, it's it's not. Fun. Uh, yeah. not that fun <laughs> I guess it can be a good tool in context- contextualising the, the film and sort of understanding yeah. what, how the director drew from the, from the well one thing I would say that's very interesting that obviously is a problem in film generally uh, or not, not necessarily a problem but the book what's vastly different is that the perspective that it's written from changes so throughout the book I mean again I'm only at the beginning but I'm told that it changes throughout the book at certain times. You get different perspectives. So it starts off with um, the guy whose name is Max, Max yeah. in in uh, the film. But I think in the in the books, he's called Archibald. Um, and it's all told through his perspective. So Bella goes away on her um, adventures and he's kind of relaying everything that happens to us. Um, and, and we're kind of seeing it through his lens. And I think obviously in the film, it's not like that at all. You're kind of viewing the world through... Um, Bella's lens but then at the same time I think if you were to kind of um, if you were if you were trying to think about why Yorgos Lanthimos is sort of adopting a kind of occasionally like this sort of almost male gaze approach to filmmaking where you know you're seeing Emma Emma Stone in bed and you're adopting the perspective of Max McCandles or Godwin Baxter and I think he he does try and convey some kind of sense of that varying perspective but predominantly you're viewing it through the lens of um, Bella Baxter and I think that's where you get that kind of key difference which I think is hard to hard to convey in in a film well, it would be hard to convey a sort of changing perspective. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think, I think it's... it's like, it's also like at the end of the day, it's a different it's a different art piece. And clearly Yorgos has just maybe decided that it was a lot, I mean, f- from an aesthetic perspective, it's a lot easier to keep that kind of consistent developing. Mm. I think it would be quite difficult as an audience to sort of associate with that kind of changing perspective. And it would be a lot harder to sort of carve out such a distinct looked at the film which i think is part of what makes it exactly so So not also the case that like the first few pages of the book make up a a lot of the film i thought i read somewhere that like it's the the very start of the book actually makes up like a huge runtime in the film yeah yeah there's lots of there's lots of time compression and time dilation, dilation i guess would be the word um in the book as as different to the film for sure Right. Yeah, that. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you w- want to see an example of where someone is able to switch perspective within a film, I think there's no better films to look at than the film we reviewed a couple of weeks ago, Zuzu River, where they have that complete switch in perspective, don't they? Mm-hmm. Going from the first person to the third person and another story within one film. I thought oh, that yeah. worked really well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's. 
I think it's something that audiences are less comfortable with in film. So like in a book, you're used to, you understand that in a book, there is a, almost like a narrator and then that narrator can switch and that narrator isn't the same as the author. And sometimes there's discrepancies. Whereas I think with film, there there isn't this kind of uh, distance between you and the and the camera and the and what's going on and i think sort of um dealing with that is more challenging in film mm. i'm just trying to think of examples of how films that have done that mm. i also think just what you were saying nathan about how this is a very separate art piece and that it almost takes on an entirely different um like it's almost like a coming of age story for bella baxter which would of course then be shown through the lens of bella baxter for the entirety of the film rather than switching perspectives i guess yeah yeah i mean i liked your point theo about frankenstein which in a way is a coming of age film if you like for the for the monster and i mean it's interesting you know um the surgeon's name is godwin and there's you know obviously there's the god illusion but also godwin is the surname of William Godwin, who's Mary Shelley's father, and in a way, I mean, it is like a uh, it's like a version of Frankenstein, but it's almost as if it's a a version of Frankenstein written by Frankenstein or by the monster rather, um, right. from the monster's perspective. In this case, that monster is Bella Baxter, Emma or that creation. Emma Stone, Stone in German, Stein, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Mm. <laughs> 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 anyway. Yeah. Hi, just a quick note from me. If you are listening to this podcast and not yet subscribed to our Substack, please do so immediately. We have some great film reviews going through at the moment. We've just had Aguirre, The Wrath of God by Werner Herzog, a spectacular film. And this week we have a pick from Ukrainian Soviet film director Larissa Shapitko, which is a crazy war film with uh, christ-like imagery throughout so yeah definitely worth checking out um, another quick note uh, if you're partial to a little easter egg um, please make sure you listen beyond the outro of this podcast as we have a very special call-in um, from one of our uh, dear reads on film fans at the end um, so please hang on and uh, check it out and if you'd like to be featured send us uh, an email drop us a line and we'll be more than happy to have you on our show thanks enjoy the rest of the show i think the, the, the question of freedom is really interesting something that i hadn't thought about so much but how and, and again this isn't only i think obviously a key part of the freedoms that bella Baxter, I keep thinking it's Bella Stone, but Bella Baxter is challenging. It's obviously patriarchal, but I think also interesting is that um, there are loads of different kind of barriers in society that are being challenged throughout the film. Like when she moves into, I think it's Lisbon, where she's sort of on this kind of like holiday holiday area where all these other rich people, there are lots of kind of social constraints as well that aren't only applying to women, but also to just mm. sort of everyone of how, how one is expected to behave. Mm. And I think also interestingly, those who promote freedom and, and sort of style themselves, Duncan Wedderburn being the classic one, he's sort of like, oh, I'm a liberal, like I'm a libertine, like free love, like let's go and do whatever. He then becomes this person who actually sort of the, the, once the freedom dissolves he then becomes another form of a constraint and and the same to an extent when she moves to paris and works in a brothel at yeah. first it's like this ah oh, you know like i can make money through sex i'm kind of liberated in some sense it's giving me all this freedom financial freedom and control and then after a while you have catherine hunter i think who plays the the madame she she 
also then sort of starts to exert control over her yeah. like, even though it's this kind of soft soft power like here have some cookies and some milk i love you you're my favorite but then obviously also is like invested in sort of keeping her in this in this prison yeah. yeah i mean she has that great line when she arrives in um lisbon i think it's something like um i've adventured and found nothing but sugar and violence mm. which is a, a great summation of an experience in lisbon i think i should use that on a <laughs> as a tagline for for weekends away but i think that's something that the director does in lots of his films doesn't he, he puts us in situations where the normal social conventions are completely Mm. Uh, sort of disrupted, torn apart, thrown away. I mean, the lobster, for example, where they have these bizarre, you know, this bizarre thing, if you're not in a partnership, that you end up being converted to an animal. Um, I think the same could be said to an extent about the favourite, although social conventions don't apply, basically, because we're dealing with the nobility and the monarchy. And certainly when you look at the dogtooth, which, you know, I think for me still is probably... Uh, my favourite work by him. I mean, we're in this situation where, you know, some children kept um, in a garden, kept prisoner by their family, and they completely subvert the normal social conventions. Yeah. And that's something that, I mean, he tends to do repeatedly in his films, along with the sex. And then the, um, or when I say the sex, I think he uses sex as a means to... Um, well, in a way, externalized sort of power dynamics in terms of relationships, but then also the use of the extreme uh, wide lens shots, which yes. is certainly common in most of his films. Oh, like yeah. the fish eyes. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. 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 Like um, the pan panorama where it's like, well, it's not a panorama, but it's like high, um, what do you call that, like field of view kind of. Yeah, so the, there's the, he uses a lot of wide lenses. I mean, I guess now we're talking about this, maybe I can spill the beans a little bit for the uh, cinematography nerds uh, listening. <laughs> um, so the film was shot on 35mm film. Um, and he, I think he... So he's, he's always used... He's always been a big fan of the wide lens. Um, and, you know, you can see that in a lot of the, a lot of the scenes early on. But like, you know, you get that entire set uh, present. I think it, it was like a... I think he used like an eight millimeter or actually I don't know about that but he so the the shots that you were referring to Theo is the fish eye those fish eye lens shots that's actually a lens which is essentially too small for the film format so I think it's it's for like 60 mil but he's used it on a 35 mil camera um, and it's a four mil lens uh, so like super wide but it's too small for the format which is why you get that kind of black vignette around the corner around the edges um, the cinematographer Robbie Ryan uh, I was actually watching an interview with him and he was talking about the amount of experimentation they went into for the film and uh, like sort of looking at different lenses and what, what to use and they when they decided on using that uh, sort of vignetted fish islands uh, apparently on set your, if Yorgos thought there wasn't a uh, enough going on in the scene or he just thought it needed that little extra bit like kick He'd be like, "Oh, get out the four mil, get out the four mil, mm -hmm. four millimeter." They get the four millimeter lens on, and in some of the scenes, I think one particular one, uh, the dancing scene, they use it. That's a great scene. Yeah, and he, I guess he just thought the energy there was quite right, uh, just to put the four mil on and just film with that. I know it was a one camera shoot as well, so they only had one. Usually, you know, when you're shooting a not blockbuster film, but a high budget film like this, you have multiple cameras, uh, but they just had the single camera in this. 
Um, and yeah, I, I like that idea that he was sort of playing it a bit fast and loose with the lenses and sort of experimenting. It's just made me think, Nathan. You remember when we did the well, we did the Boy and the Heron podcast, mm. and we spent quite a bit of time talking about the director, how he was well questioning whether he was placing himself in the film and which role he played. Mm. And I think you can see the same thing going on here again with um, uh, Lanthimos in this film, in that like Bella, he is this. Um, character almost within the film with this um, with this wide angle lens sort of curious trying stuff doesn't work I'm going to spit it out on the plate and try something else mm. yeah, yeah. No, but there's also there's a moment I think in that same dancing scene where Bella Baxter or Emma Stone accidentally kicks the camera I think and I have to go back and watch it but I saw this in an interview afterwards and apparently you can see in the shot that she kind of kicks the lens and they sort of left that in um, and I think it's it's a good demonstration again we've talked about this before of like you know the filmmaking process being this kind of evolving one and you know it's quite I think it's what makes it unique as an art form and, and the part of that that, that kind of creation that, that process of like making the film that you know that's as much uh, that's as much a part of the end result as the original conception of the idea and the writing and the sort of original director's vision you know that that, that evolves and you know, it's sort of um, fed by the rest of the cast and crew. Um, yeah. Another interesting thing on the kind of uh, um, technical side of things, uh, he, the director, he didn't like, he doesn't like using artificial lights. So a lot of the lighting in the film is all natural, um, which, you know, it does give the film a certain look. Um, at times, you know, it does look quite dark, but I think, you know, it, it definitely gives a, a definite character um, to, to the scenes and I imagine like even as like probably being like actors on the set it's quite immersive to be in a set where everything is just lit you know as opposed to having like 10 LEDs behind you like back up mm. putting a huge backlight on, on, on you uh, right. you've got like just the you know the natural candles um, kind of reminds me a little bit of um, Barry Lyndon Barry Lyndon we can say yeah about, like Barry yeah. Kubrick Bar Barry Lyndon yeah. that kind of yeah. very precise I was also surprised to find out that a lot of the, a lot of, so like, I think the, the, the VFX stuff, the special effects was quite limited as well. Um, and so for example, when they're on that boat and you can see the big skyline, that was just a massive LED screen. And I think they use some VFX to like fill out the, the corners, but other than oh, that, those, it was those like- bit, Those skies. Yeah, yeah, those right. big skies were all there, oh, which I think, right. again, mm. must make a difference if you're an actor, like mm. you're used to just being on a boat and there's a massive green screen behind you, but mm. instead you've got this giant sort of, well, yeah, those skies were, were amazing. Yeah. Like every sky was like this kind of glowing, yeah, like phosphorescent. I mean, there are. I'm trying to think. There aren't that many directors whose films I've seen when experiencing them. You think, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. Mm. I mean, thinking back. I mean, Tim Burton. This is probably you know before going back before you guys were even born when he uh, came out. This is in his early days before all that stuff with Alice in Wonderland. Um, Edward Scissorhands I think when I saw that I thought wow never seen that going further back there's a um, British director you may have heard of Peter, Peter Greenaway Cook the Thief his Wife his Lover I, I mean I saw that I saw that in the cinema back in the ritzy de old ritzy days mm. and again I just thought well, I've never seen anything like that the only other person I can think of is 
obviously David Lynch, who we all yeah. know. Um, and interesting, I don't know whether you saw this or you remember this, there was a bit towards the end of the film where Godwin, he's unwell and he's having problems with his um, with his guts and he blows these bubbles. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Which is, to me, a direct lift from some of the episodes in Twin Peaks The Return. Mm. And I wonder whether that was a deliberate reference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very weird that. I'm the waiting for that to, I'm waiting for that to come up in the book, but I think it was a Yorgos Lanthimos original. Like cuz he's he's sort of he almost like he dislocates his jaw and it's quite mechanical and then this sort of giant bubble. It's while he's eating, isn't it? Yeah. At, at the beginning as well. Yeah, I mean the, the like I think that is for me going coming out of that film it was like the the main the main the thing that I did just like the most about it was the look. It was so distinct. It you know, there's no, there's not there's no other film at least that I've seen that kind of captures that aesthetic yeah which is quite a unique and I, I, like i've heard people throw around, around the term like gothic and yeah it is gothic but it doesn't quite capture it so yeah there's like a blend of steampunk in there it's a very bit like steampunk, very steampunk yeah. lemony snicket I, I <laughs> you know what that's funny you yeah. say that because i also thought that i was like <laughs> yeah. this is how a series of unfortunate events should have looked when they <laughs> televised it yeah because again it's that same kind of thing it's like a, a children in this like kind of terrifying weird strange world trying to navigate yeah. it yeah I that think, is a good point. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't even. I, 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 does that genre have a name though? Because I, I don't think like other than got like gothic. There's but, a video game called Don't Starve, which is like a survival mm. game that does the same. Have you played? Has yeah, played that? Don't yeah. Starve. Yeah, played? we played it. Together. Yeah, it's got that kind of has that same. It's like yeah, it's not quite. It's not quite pure gothic in the sense of like um sort of castles and vampires mm. and like sort of scary black gates, but like it's sort of like gothic, but with almost like a childlike fairy tale twist yeah. almost fairy tale yeah. gothic it's like a synthesis isn't it because uh, going back to the opening scenes I mean although it's supposedly um, London with St Paul's Cathedral in the background it was also like Edinburgh which is where the book is set isn't I it? think it's Glasgow, Glasgow. But, yeah. but it has that well that Scottish sort of vibe mm. tenements and the the you know the hospital with the surgical theatre very much remind me of Arthur Conan Doyle mm. and his work Elephant Man that game that Elephant Man, Man. Yeah. yeah yeah I thought the house the like God Baxter Godwin's house the set for that was also really really impressive mm. and the wide shots really like captured the like labyrinth like kind of twisting hallways yeah. and the fact that with the wide shot you could see like up the winding stairs and the whole hallway it was almost like and the fact that Godwin Baxter never really left the house, it was almost like it was his kind of an extension of him in a way. Yeah. His domain. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. felt like mm. his like castle really. And I thought that in a way, the like bubble. Ep so in the kitchen, it was like everything was very circular and like you saw in the back all like the plates lined up, all the windows to the doors were like um, oval shapes. And I thought, I'm not sure what they were trying to do there, but everything was very like rounded and soft. And it added to that kind of like um, surreal aesthetic, I thought. Yeah, mm. it was a lot of it was, I think the large majority of the film was shot on sound stages. So it, it's quite fun, quite, it's quite funny in a way because we've just watched the film Aguirre, Wrath of God, which I think I said is a testament to shooting on location and shows like, how much you can gain from like just being there, like you know, in the deep in the jungle, uh, filming things on location. And this film is almost the opposite in that 
It's all shot on sta- sound stages, all like immaculately designed sets. And that in itself is a testament to the, you know, to, to that and like, you know, creating practical effects and being very precise and very crafted. It's, it's almost, you know, two sides of a coin. Like, mm-hmm. like Wizard of Oz, for example, which could only ever, in those days, only have been yeah. created on a sound stage. Yeah. Mm. What do you think of the um, performances? great i thought they were really good i thought emma stone was a very like complex and excellent performance having to like transform throughout the film um i thought mark ruffalo was uh like i thought that was like a perfect casting because even though he was this kind of villainous character I feel like the fact that it was Mark Ruffalo, he kind of had like a sympathetic kind of edge to him. I'm surprised you said. I, I I think I think like maybe pathetic, but no, I didn't. I didn't sympathise with him. I found him uh, kind of annoying and like. I no, think but I, I, I think I get sympathy like, in that patheticness, maybe. Yeah, I think I, I get, totally get because he like he's so obviously he, like I, I mean I think he's at the, at the, he kind of grows throughout the film in a way, and at the beginning, and maybe it is, it is mm. that kind of changing of power dynamics in that. At the beginning, he clearly is exploiting Bella, but by the end, he is very much like when they're in Paris and he's there sat on a bench and he's suddenly, all you know, everything that made him great, all his money is gone. And, you know, you can't help, you feel like you're like, oh, yeah, it's, he's a bit pathetic. And you're like, oh, you know, I guess it's, it's that power dynamic. You, you suddenly go, oh, poor thing. Well, that, I mean that yeah I was just thinking that actually it's a good point because obviously the film is called Poor Things and poor it's things. encouraging you to think about multiple poor things I suppose rather mm. than a singular but one of my favourite scenes actually is when he realises that all his money's yeah. he thinks he's won it all back <laughs> and then just like no I gave it to I gave it away That's brilliant. Yeah. and like he just has to a complete those, meltdown uh, sort of boat <sighs> workers who yeah. also just taking advantage of her yeah it's funny um, in a way because he, he almost he almost kind of uh is an inversion of Bella in the, at the beginning of the film. He's this sort of figure of authority. He's a lawyer. He's distinguished. And then like slowly his character unravels into the point where he's just this sort of blubbering man child, sort of throwing snowballs and like <laughs> calling them whores as they, yeah. as they walk away. Like yeah. he's almost gone in the inverse while she's sort of become more erudite and more sophisticated and mm. can sort of easily suss him out and figure out switching of roles in a way. Yeah. So I think that's really, really clever. Do you guys remember, or do you know um, Terry Thomas? Have you heard of him? He was the sort of actor a well-known actor in films in the 40s and 50s who always played these sort of louche villain types and he had a, a waxed moustache <laughs> and a gap too and I mean I don't know whether Mark Ruffler was aware of him but he certainly uh, is very reminiscent of him he's the guy that um, do you know um, Dastardly and Muttley yeah. and all that stuff you know Catch the Pigeon mm. well I think das- uh, Dick Dastardly that's it Wacky Races Dick Dastardly was based on um, Terry Thomas from his films right and you can see that lineage mm. <laughs> also I like the way they were almost I mean I don't know what's going on with their accents I mean at times Willem Dafoe was doing a I liked I actually remember it, it, was almost, it was almost <laughs> like they were competing to see who could be the most weird but also the most inconsistent because yeah. they were all over the place yeah. in terms of their I, accents I, which I think added to I, the sort of kind of baroque unreal world they I were think Mark in. Ruffalo's accent as well it's almost like sat uh, satirizing that like elitism and that like classism by having this really like stupidly funny like stupidly inconsistent accent it's almost like he's really overdoing it and it's yeah. satirizing that like that accent in itself 
Or he's just not very good at doing an English accent. Or that. <laughs> I thought he was mostly good. And then when he got when he was doing angry shouting and swearing, then it was full American. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the first time he's done a yeah. British accent. So. Not, none, none of the accents I found... I mean, because, maybe it's because the film in itself was so, as you yeah. said, like weird and, yeah. Yeah. And, and all over the place. And they were going between sense. different countries yeah. as well. But speaking about accents and language, I mean, I, I think one really important part of Emma Stone's performance was the way her language developed throughout mm, the film. Yeah. You know, when it starts, mm. it, it's very much just blurting out sort of one syllable, um, these sort of words which don't make sense. Yeah. And then by the end of the film, she's quite sort of fluent yeah. and articulate. And I, you know, Callum, I know you're always um, keen to bring in Lacan into. <laughs> into yeah, yeah, our film discussions but I mean yeah I mean what a better example of the way you know language development is related to emotional development than getting poor things yeah, yeah. I mean that that speaking of Lacan there is obviously a key psycho psychoanalytic line of line of inquiry I think in this film of just watching like someone develop and the idea of language and obviously for Freud in particular the kind of sexuality and infantile sexuality is a is a big thing that you could probably do an entire podcast yeah on, I think to be honest yeah I mean if you're the talk and about again, the lack of her mother what did you what? think of the relationship between Baxter Godwin and um uh what's her name Emma Stone's character Bella Baxter because I thought that was a one that was quite hard to define in that it was he was both fatherly but they were also kind of best friends and there's yeah I don't know if they were insinuated there was like a kind of romantic element yeah I, I think that again with her you know childish curiosity not having any awareness of social norms you know there was, I think there was a scene at the beginning when they were in bed together and she was sort of cuddling up to to her uh, to him and he actually you know you could just see his reaction was no and i think he moved to another room didn't he yeah yeah, it's, norms. yeah. it's interesting yeah. because and, and this is the one time in the podcast while i'll invoke that in the book line but in the i think in the book initially the idea is that he godwin baxter does create tries to create bella as like a, a companion as someone that can like you know be his basically wife or you know sex robot but um, I'm not actually sure why it doesn't work out. But I think for some reason it's it doesn't work. He can't. I think maybe it's like he sees his creation and there's like this weird kind of. He doesn't because it, it starts line. getting knowledge, doesn't it? Yeah, there is a line Max asks because he uh, yeah one of his first questions her, yeah and he says something like I tried but I can get over the fact or yeah there is a line in the film that does address mm. Mm. but I mean if you want to take a yeah if you want to do a deep psychoanalytic dive i think freud maybe not but certainly there was this bizarre you probably don't know about him there's this bizarre um, german analyst around the time of freud called um wilhelm reich who was he had this sort of idea about body armor how emotion is expressed through body movements obviously leading on to through sex and he actually came up with these bizarre machines I can't remember what they were called now, orgones or something. These oh, electrical the machines. Orgone accumulators. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Wait, was, he, was, um, was he a psychoanalyst? Though? Yeah, he was. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was. <laughs> Anyone can be a psychoanalyst. But anyway, he invented these, yeah, the orgone yeah, accumulators. Organ he used to go in there. But I think he went 
yeah, it went too far because he started <laughs> he started touting it as a cure for cancer. I can't remember what, how it played out, but he ended up in prison. Yeah, because um, <laughs> you know who a big you know, what, you know, what were these devices? Well, you know who was a big fan Orgone of organ accumulators, um, William Burroughs, yeah, who, who yeah. famously <laughs> accidentally shot his wife in the head. You might be able to get them on Amazon if you have a look. <laughs> it's basically it's kind of like the Scientology type. It's just like a basically a tin. It's like a tin box with like some wires on some copper wires in it. Right. And it's supposed to accumulate orgones. Yeah. What, sorry, what's an orgone? It's like a, it's sort of like a, what do you call the, you know, like the weird particles in Scientology? Uh, it's like that sort of yeah. thing. It's like right. there's an unseen energy that we don't know about that kind of taps into our body and our psychology and affects us. Yeah, like oh. the force in Star Wars. Yes. Like yeah. The, yeah, the better example <laughs> no, it's is like the force. It binds <laughs> us, it controls yeah. us. Anyway, um, let's go back to politics. Well, yeah. <laughs> what about, what about the music? Yeah, well, I was going to say, so Nathan, you said earlier that the look, and I think the look is obviously maybe the most audacious and the most impactful thing. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, it's it was just, the look was amazing, but only one part of a film that was pushing in so many different directions and the sound in particular. I think, as you mentioned earlier, Theo, this kind of, you're new into the world. So not only is the vision distorted and the kind of, the, the world is full of these weird hallucinations and things that are out of shape, but the music was the same. It was his first score. Um, I think he's, he's only got two albums on Spotify. One is like a weird winter riser sort of pop synthesizer album, and then live at Cafe Otto to give a sense of like the, the kind of guy he is. This is his first score. Um, he used a lot of like live, um, I think, wind instruments and instruments that had mecha me mechanics in it to kind of almost mirror this kind of Frankenstein-y put together steampunk, steampunk aesthetic. Mm. So there's a lot of wind, there's a lot of like breath control and sort of tonality and texture. There's so much texture in the in the film sound that I, I really, really appreciated. Particularly that kind of atonal out of tune, sort of whirring and pitch bending sounds at the beginning is really weird. Again, not something you want to listen to maybe while you're asleep or going to uh, going to work, but a really amazing. I think also he, he said that Yorgos is very happy to have like sound that almost sometimes um, over is overblown and sort of melodramatic in a way. And I think the, the prime example of that is in uh, the Alexandria scene when she's suddenly exposed to the, the, the concepts of poor people. And like, yeah, the sound yeah, yeah. is getting crazy. You have all these strings and it's like very intense, almost heightened emotions. Um, and yeah, there are so many highlights like that throughout the film, which I think unfortunately, I mean, I don't think it's nominate, not that Oscar nominations matter for much, but I think because the film has so much going for I think it's easy to overlook the soundtrack, um, but yeah, I really, really loved it. Yeah, I mean, it surprised me. It's his first first film score. First it? film yeah, score, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me very much of Michael Nyman. You know, with those sort of discordant strings playing. Um, again, touching on uh, Peter Greenaway because he did all those films like Draftsman's Contract and stuff, and Zed and Two Noughts. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the main things that stood out for me in the first um, like 20, 30 minutes. The like very disjointed like um scattered soundtrack uh score um really and how the score like evolved with the with the visuals um mm. of bella baxter kind of growing up i thought 
it was clearly like a very considered and a very like um meaningful use of score and like visuals and cinematography all together yeah i'm hoping that this is going to inspire more films to kind of go a bit more out there with their with their kind of visual and like i mean musical language i feel like people that, that there is usually more room for experimentation but i think visually like it's i hope you know probably gonna see a lot more crash zooms i imagine in the next couple of years mm-hmm. oh, yeah, i forgot about those yeah, yeah. i well, like it, them i think they're really good well it sounds it sounds so like we, it sounds like we all like this film but nathan when we opened our discussion you said that so you had a problem with some of the pacing Theo said it. Ta- Theo said it tapered off at, at the end, yeah. which I, is interesting because yeah. I've heard a lot of people say that, and I thought because runtime wise, it's t- I think it's two hours twenty, which is yeah. long. Normally, that's like a red flag for me. And normally, so there's there's I think there's a clear point where a lot of people expected it to end at the wedding scene, mm. um, and then there's this kind of final act when she goes to goes back with her husband now normally in films i normally hate that like epilogue last bit and i think you know what i wish the director would just cut it at the two hours you know we don't need to see batman get back together with catwoman let's and then who's going to be the villain in the next one just cut it once he's saved introducing the next yeah once he's, once he's saved gotham let's just roll the credits yeah. and let's all go home Someone half an hour early cut. But I, I didn't feel that way in this film. I thought it was, it felt like the film was wrapping up and then it was like this rug pulled away. Yeah, oh God, yeah. now she's trapped in here. Yeah. And I think what's also was quite frustrating about it was that she almost, you, you kind of expect that she's gone through this journey. She's learned a lot. She'll, she's not going to be stupid enough to go and live with this man who obviously she killed us. She killed herself in her previous life for a reason to get away from him. But for some reason she decides to go along with it. So it's quite a frustrating, quite tense watch. And interestingly as well, considering she's been halfway around the world, it's the only real time where you feel a sense of serious danger for Bella. And you think, Mm. gosh, this is going to, this could end up being quite a nasty ending to a film that's been up otherwise quite sort of positive and uplifting. Mm. A lot of the times where there's a threat, it, it ends up sort of dissolving into nothing, but yeah. I really liked the ending and I thought it yeah. was quite nice. I mean, for me, I thought it unpacked, you know, what she was like before she was Bella Baxter and that she was yeah, not such a nice person. So the contrast between Alfie Blessington um, and Mark Ruffalo's like pathetic bumbling character, both kind of villains, although one could argue that Mark Ruffalo somewhat villainous side kind of fizzles out throughout mm. the film. But Alfie Blessington is that his name Alfie Blessington very much contrasts in that he's much more he seems like a much more real threat to Bella Baxter he seems much more um, like less of a fun character I guess yeah I think there's something more distinctly evil about Mm. his character I I guess it'd be interesting to unpack why that is Um, I mean obviously he's using he's as violent like he's Although um, Mark, Mark Ruffalo's character um, Duncan is manipulative and kind of uses sex as like a tool for his own kind of personal gain, he doesn't. It's it's never like it's never outright violent in the same way that um, Alfie Blessington is. Um, and I think again, he that he does have those kind of maybe somewhat for- forgivable qualities. Uh, Mark Ruffalo's character. Doesn't he smack her in the face at one point? Does he? Mm. Maybe yeah. I'm giving too much sure. credence. Yeah. 
I saw the film a while ago. I, okay, I guess my, I guess my point is I think we talked we talked we've already talked about this really but is that 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 like it's very clear the games that that uh, Duncan is playing mm. and I think the fact that they they become so it's so obvious and the fact that Emma Stone's like Bella Baxter becomes uh, aware of these games that that it can't it kind of reduces them and makes um, makes them less of a threat whereas this other character he uh, Alfie Blessington he is far more of an immediate threat he's far more he, he doesn't have that like there's no we, we don't see that kind of exposed side of him that like vulnerable side that maybe we see in Duncan well, we do somewhat because he's what he's got like the war past and he's got um doesn't he have like PTSD from the war is that not <laughs> yeah he does yeah he does so that makes his... you feel sorry for him no that's not that's I guess that would be his like that's his he's got a um... lot of sympathy for all these villains here I have to say I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that's, no, that's I'm these not Gen Z for you it's all about his mental health I'm not and well-being sympath- I'm sympathetic towards him but I'm saying that that's if you wanted to give him a vulnerable side I feel like that's yeah. his well you guess it, yeah. it is interesting you say that i don't unfortunately i wish i had the i wish i had the quote to hand but emma stone is on record saying that her favorite line from the whole film is from alfie blessington who says something like i've disemboweled men on the battlefield and then i feel i felt disemboweled when you were gone i imagined it as like a low throbbing in my stomach um minus the excrement or whatever <laughs> minus the smell of excrement and it was like that, yeah, that was an interesting uh, quote mm. I thought from him of like him comparing the, the absence of the, uh, his wife to like being disemboweled on the back. He drove her to jump off a bridge. Yeah, it's yeah. an interest. It is an interesting uh, dynamic because yeah. Yeah. well, and he eventually did turn into a goat. At which point, maybe you can feel again some sort of, sort of pity for him because he's a goat. Just eating oh, grass. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? He just becomes. This he's he's completely rem- he, he he lacks any kind of. Also, there seem to be quite some like religious undertones to the film. Um, like the, I'm not when Bella goes to Alfie Blessington's like home. It's got like all these crosses on the top, and there's very like, I don't know what, like religious aspect. <laughs> I'm not really but a religious in person some, myself. In some ways, I mean, <laughs> it, it sort of brings up, I mean, in some ways, it's the most disturbed part of the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, because it's all, I mean, we've talked about sex in the film, but it's there that he starts going on about um, about how men have to live with this curse, their sexual compulsions, and how it's a woman's function to have children, not to have pleasure. Because he's talking about actually Oh, mutilating her, isn't it? There's that whole that. weird yeah. thing, which I think, as you said, I think it's almost forgotten because it's at the end of the film, mm. but it gets really quite dark. Yeah, yeah. that's what I guess. I was more, he's he he is a foul. he's a nasty piece of work to to a, to a greater degree than than Duncan. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He's like a he's a psychopath. Yeah, he's like a full on. He's a, yeah nutter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he does, yeah, he points a gun at her, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. it because he wants basically he wants to remove her clitoris. Yeah. And yeah. she says no, thanks. Mm. Yeah. 
it's, a, it's definitely a, the darkest the darkest moment really in the film I think mm. that that's and also again I think the color is stripped away and, and all that kind of fantasy aspect is almost gone because it's a very kind of cold also the way he treats the servants he like yeah. makes the woman spill her soup all over yeah, herself yeah. yeah and they all hate her and then sort of it's interesting because Bella Baxter is trying to put together what happened in her previous life and mm. obviously the, the servants don't want anything to do with her because they they don't realize she's undergone this surgery mm. and it's a different person mm. Mm. Interesting, though, that she was once a di- like maybe a kind of horrific character herself. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid, yeah, I, Thea, I'm afraid none of those none of those um, signs would fit with a diagnosis of post traumatic stress disorder. Does that not come up that he has PTSD in the film? It's yeah, like maybe, a lie. It's, it comes. It definitely think, yeah, comes I don't up. Think it explains this. No, it's, it's not as an explainer. Yeah. <laughs> I think the question of. The question of trauma is an interesting one as well from a, from a thematic perspective, not only in his case, but also Godwin Baxter. So, and then also as we've seen with mm. Bella dying and then coming back, she's obviously kills loads of animals very early on and has this kind of underlying obsession with violence quite early on, which I, I think in a way is almost swept under the rug a bit and doesn't become too much of a, too much of a big thing. But there is like this, bark. there is this sense of like trauma and how it can be passed on. So Godwin Baxter, obviously his dad, his father, was like this big surgeon and obviously just did all these like cuts and like all the disfigurement on his face as a result of his his um his father Uh, again that's one of the great lines in the film i think that should be a a motto for most surgeons you must carve with compassion carve with compassion (laughs) yeah Yeah, that that was actually this is like becoming a bit of a russian doll this film and you know the more we unpack it more yeah. comes out but that reminded me of another thing and that uh just at the beginning of the film there were a few scenes where it would be focused on bella and it would be willem dafoe in the background doing some kind of surgery that was like <laughs> the most ridiculous looking thing like carving something up or like mm. and there was one scene i, I again I, I i've forgotten now but just the most absurd like bits of surgery where it's like what is he actually doing there mm. um, yeah but i guess yeah in reality that's how the uh, profession of surgery Especially probably developed. Victorian times, right? Yeah. It was like, what yeah, happens? Yeah, what happens if we do stitching <laughs> another arm onto this bloke's back <laughs> in front of a group of medical students? Let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. But that was definitely an entertaining kind of aspect mm. of the first quarter. But yeah, I think there are so many themes that we. I mean, we just won't have time to touch on. But like science in general, science. Mm. But so something that keeps mm. coming up with Bella Baxter is empirically. That she uses this word empirically, mm. and I think one of the key kind of ideas of this film is that science will only take you so far and you see that when the when her second iteration mm. is is brought to life mm. and you have almost the like the doppelganger appears who isn't quite as good as Bella Baxter we're not entirely sure why and it's almost like because she hasn't had that kind of like the same love and and attention that um, Bella got she's sort of just this sort of scientific robotic type of character and is lacking all those components it's like if you have more than one child the first one gets so much yeah. so much attention the others are just pale imitations <laughs> Nathan you're looking rather quizzical there yeah. <laughs> I think so it's just a copy of a copy though yeah. a copy, yeah. a copy, a copy. but yeah <laughs> but then there's also that thing of the um, Bella Baxter being allowed to like go out and gain her own experiences and yeah. like live her own life allows her to kind of become this kind of sophisticated mm. person mm. as opposed to like when you're brought up in the constraints of this yeah. um the this pa- I guess patriarchal constraints 
then you're unable to develop as mm. yeah. because she, did, she didn't develop past that stage until she left yeah, right. and went to mm. Lisbon and you know it, it's easy to forget that those adaptations in the film she you know she could barely mm. string a sentence together but there's know. also those moments where the, 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 that kind of scientific approach is also implied in the, in the men as well so like um, Godwin has, collapses in the surgery and then I think Max says to him like is it you know is it because you're missing Bella and he's like don't be so ridiculous we're men of science like yeah. we don't let these emotions kind of cloud our judgment and obviously I think yeah again it's 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 an issue that all of the characters are, are, are grappling with to an mm. extent like that those empirical yeah. truths versus Godwin's um, definitely one of the stranger like stranger characters in the whole film in terms of doing this all in pursuit of science but what he's doing really does go against like the law it goes against mm. what we it's what we would normally see for example in frankenstein as victor frankenstein as almost a villainous character in himself but then because he's got this past trauma he's also got this very compassionate side we almost want to sympathize with him and he's almost becomes this like far this in terms of out of the men portrayed in the film I'd say his relationship with Bella Baxter is probably the most um, like loving and the most, the one that we're most sympathetic of. I guess. It's purely platonic, right? Yeah. I mean, just a quick point. Well, I mean, that's how, sur- that's how surgeons learned their trade. They used to have to steal bodies. Mm. Yeah, stealing bodies out of the river. Also, maybe uh, what we're looking for from what you're saying, Theo, is maybe a prequel. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> the, what, story, uh, the story, story of Godwin, of Godwin Baxter. Baxter and his father yeah. yeah well that's the thing because in a way he is supposed to he is almost like this he's obviously Dr Frankenstein but also he's the monster and you yeah. see that especially when they first go out and he's everyone all the other people in the world are scared yeah. of him and he has to kind mm. of hide his yeah. face elephant man again yeah what about them calling him God is that do, you, do we have any further interpretations of what that well, I think that's the same thing, isn't it? It's this firstly this idea that God is a patriarchal creator. Yeah. And I think it, it's, you know, he's the, the person that you're supposed to, he's all loving, all knowing and all powerful, but also that can be in itself a kind of constraint and a kind of a, a kind of love that is suffocating. Well, the, well he, like he, I guess in a way he, he's also removed from, he's removed from that. Mm. Maybe having, again, like we were talking about his relationship with Bella, and he's removed from maybe having that like, romantic relationship being god being the creator like mm, yeah you know you, yeah he's, he's not involved with that kind of more yeah. human, maybe human side and if you go if you go back to the old testament god he's certainly not all that loving is yeah. he he's an angry god a jealous god a wrathful god more than happy to chloroform people when <laughs> as and when he sees necessary <laughs> yeah. we're, gonna, we're gonna lose all our uh, yeah, <laughs> our, our, our believing. Uh, I do think there are a lot of religious undertones in mm. the film. Well, it was another film. It'd but... be good to look, do a more deep dive into. Yeah, and anyone... also another theme that we haven't talked about at all is class. Like, there's this whole socialist undertone mm. that that comes oh. into it as well. Um, the fact that Max is like he's too poor to afford surgeons' clothing. The fact that Godwin is obviously from this wealthy family, and then obviously the scene in Alexandra where she first discovers even the concept of money and the fact that some people don't have it and so they're sort of left to rot in the, in the bottom of some pit. And then she becomes a socialist, right? In the second half. Mm, she does. Yeah. Yeah. Become, yeah. And then finally becomes a doctor as well. Becomes, becomes a, a surgeon. Yeah. Um, in the way so she becomes God. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Which is probably a big change from what she was before from living with that other guy. Another yeah. film about rebirth, rebirth, actually. Yeah. Really, you what could... Was the first yeah. One? Well, Boy in the Heron. Heron. Oh. It's a big film theme in that. Oh, I didn't, yeah. 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 Well, I guess we'll 
seems like we're ready to wrap up there mm. i mean you we could as i said there's so many themes that we haven't really talked about socialism religion god science and many more maybe a part um, two so yeah maybe it maybe we'll do a retrospective in a year's time when yeah. yorgos lanthimos's next film comes out which by the way is already filmed it, yeah with, with emma stone right? emma stone the rep the replica of emma stone and the, huh? the you know the the second oh, is that, oh really yeah she's in it <laughs> Uh, so I think we'll it, um, to see that coming Olivia Coleman in it. I was surprised she wasn't in this I'm not one. Sure, I'm kind of glad she wasn't. I'm a bit sick of seeing her. To be honest. <laughs> <I'd like laughs> anyway, shout out Olivia <laughs> Coleman. Everyone's entitled to an opinion, sick I guess. She's in, yeah, you know, that, there's that yeah. point where she was in every single show yeah. on BBC. It was like, yeah. oh, the new nine o'clock drama. BBC darling. Olivia Coleman, the movie. Uh, Peep show was the highlight. Mm, yeah, it was all downhill from there. Anyway, Overrated. anyway, any, any, would anyone like to have any closing remarks on the uh, on the film on poor things? We didn't talk about the dog, duck, duck, dog. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. that was good. Some people have said that um, Bella is coded autistic, and it should be it should have been made clear from the, in the film that she's supposed to be a neurodivergent character, and this is actually a story about <laughs> neurodiversity. So I'm there's lots of people are taking lots of things from the film. Mm -hmm. um, it's no surprise that it's caused a lot of. Uh, heated discussion controversy mm. but you know as always with reads on film we put on a brave face we get out and uh, we get our hands we roll up our sleeves and we you know do some compassionate carving of the of the films that are laid up on our surgical table <laughs> so no one's right. got any closing remarks no maybe um what's that film coming out i'm sure it's going to cause a lot of uh, commentary zone of, zone of zone interest of interest yeah as I called it. So, so well, uh, maybe take a look at that. We'll see. Yeah, yeah we'll, uh, I'm sure there'll be more podcasts to come uh, in the future. We always love to hear your opinion, uh, dear listeners, dear readers. So thank you again for subscribing. Yeah. Tell us if you love the film. Tell us if you hated it. Um, and we will see you next time. This is Reads on Film. You've been great. Thank you and good night. Cheers. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> That's good, Theo. You might to see. Do you want to retake that bit, Theo? That was quite. I thought that was quite a good uh, finishing line. listening to the reads on film podcast i uh, hope you enjoyed our review of poor things now uh, as promised we have some bonus content one of our dear readers and listeners is on the line ready to give us their take on poor things and um, we have i uh, hope scott from copenhagen are you there scott can you hear me first of all um been a big admirer of reads on film for well, since the inception thank you um, that's great to hear really, really great insights and uh, really interesting uh, reviews. Love the diversity um, of the content that you're picking. Um... Well, thank you for the for the kind words, Scott. We are struggling with a little bit of background noise there. Um, perhaps if you could find a slightly quieter spot, um, we might be able to hear you a little bit better. Um, obviously you haven't heard our, our review of uh, poor things yet but you have seen the film i believe um i mean one of the topics that we opened the open the show with was around the kind of uh, 
whether this film is a feminist film or whether it's sort of preoccupied with the male gaze and uh, the portrayal of um, sex on screen. Um, feminist masterpiece? Absolutely not. Okay. Uh, things about the male gaze, uh, also bullshit. I don't know who these wow. little woke lefties are chatting about. <laughs> okay. Being uh, kind of pornographic. Uh, it definitely, it definitely like kind of romanticizes prostitution a bit. Um, but that's what the book does. So I guess in keeping with the book, I think it did a very good job of um, not objectifying the female body um, whilst still maintaining the sex scenes. Yeah, so it wasn't something that I thought too much of when I watched the film for the first time, but I think definitely on reflection, I I have felt like there's more legitimate questions you could be asking about Yorgos Lanthimos's um, approach um, and the responsibilities he has in terms of depicting sex, and particularly female bodies on screen. You mentioned there about being in keeping with the book. I just wondered if there were any other aspects of the film which you felt were or perhaps even weren't um, as faithful to the book as you'd hoped. I think it's an absolute tragedy that uh, they've washed out the Scottish uh, relationship uh, or like, or the fact that the book was very much based on and, and about Glasgow. Um, the fact that there's a poor things trail or walk in Glasgow. Uh, it's kind of testament to how much the book is based and is kind of a celebration of Glasgow. As a real yeah, thing. I mean, I, I'm only partway through reading the, uh, the novel, but it is certainly an interesting choice to kind of remove Glasgow from from the story in that sense. Um, I I know I know I, he talks about it very vaguely in interviews, but not a huge amount, and I don't know about the other locations either. Same with, Mar- same with uh, Marseille. And Paris. Um, okay, so that was another location that was was changed. Yeah. Again, don't know why that. I think Jorgis Lanthimos's um, excuse for for putting London instead of Glasgow was that he has no connection to Scotland or Glasgow. I'm not sure how much of a connection he has to London, but a shot excuse at best. Well, listen, Scott, thank you uh, so much for getting in touch. Uh, it's always great to hear from our listeners. Um, if any other listeners would like to get in touch, either by email or phone call or just giving us a message on Twitter or Substack, please do reach out. Um, we'll try and feature any um, opinions, wild though they may be, um, on our platform because uh, we're always keen to kind of ramp up our engagement where we can. So, yeah, once again, thank you for listening to the Reads on Film podcast. Um, like and subscribe please tune in and keep an eye out because there is more coming soon goodbye